The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, today our show is about social engineering, and we have the expert in social engineering and he's a wonderful guy he's been on our show before and he has a brand new book and i am so pleased that we're going to be having kevin mitnick on with us again let me tell you a little bit about him and i'll tell you about this book that i have right in my hand it's kevin mitnick's new book called ghost in the wires my adventure as the world's most wanted hacker So he's uh, gone from wearing a black hat to wearing a white hat. So that's really wonderful. Kevin is the world's most famous former computer hacker. And he's been the subject of countless news and magazine articles. He's the idol of thousands of would-be hackers and a one-time most wanted criminal of cyberspace on the run from the bewildered feds. Now a security consultant, he has spoken to audiences at conventions all around the world And he's been on dozens of major national TV and radio shows. And he even testified in front of Congress. And he is also the author of two books that we talked about last time we interviewed him, which I love these books, The Art of Deception and The Art of Intrusion. And so you can find out a lot more about him at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. You can see his picture and we link to his websites. But also you can go to Mitnick Security. Dot com. That's M-I-T-N-I-C-K dot, I mean, no dot, M-I-T-N-I-C-K security dot com. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Hey, it's great to be on your show again, Mari. Yeah, oh goodness, you have, you've inspired me in so many ways, and I'm, I've, I'll tell you, I get very paranoid when anybody calls me, and because I know that they're going to probably be a social engineer. But let's talk about how you first got to be such a techie. Now, that was a long time ago. How did, how did that uh, techiness come about, and, and how did it evolve into computer hacking? Well, uh, when I was young, around 10, 11 years old, I was fascinated with magic, and I remember riding my bike to the magic store in the neighborhood, and I would just sit there and watch the magicians behind the counter perform magic tricks, and I would sit there and uh, so I could try to figure out the trick after they uh, demonstrated it over and over again. And I loved, I loved magic, and I loved doing pranks on friends and family. And when I was in high school, I met this student uh, who was really adept with the telephone system. He could work magic with it. And what he was was what they called a phone freak. And phone freaking 
was kind of the predecessor to computer hacking. And he showed me these amazing things he could do, like I can call a, a number, a telephone company test number, and um, a friend could call another number that is part of this circuit called a loop around, and we could magically be joined. He was able to get my, my family's unlisted number, or if I had a phone number, he called the secret department at the phone company known as the CNA Bureau, which stood for the customer name and address. So if you knew the secret number, you can call. Somebody would answer, and you would just say, I need the name, name place on, uh, on the phone number, and they'd give you the name and address, even though it was non-published. So I loved learning this stuff, and I became a phone freaker, and I started doing, pulling pranks. And one of my favorite pranks was to change uh, a friend's service at home, their telephone service, to a payphone. So whenever my friend or his parents tried to make a call, I would say, please deposit 25 cents. <laughs> oh. So, yeah, so I used to use this phone freaking and magic knowledge to really have fun. And then when the phone company started moving towards electronic systems, and this is back in 1978, 1979, that's when I became interested in computers to get a better foothold over the phone company system so I can continue being a prankster. Oh, my goodness. Whatever happened to that friend of yours? Do you know? I, I actually Googled the guy. Um, I think he's like a senior marketing guy. <laughs> I think he was at Cisco, and now he moved on to another company. Uh, I, don't, I don't communicate or associate with him anymore. I mean, it was you know, 20, 30 years ago. But it's kind of interesting because he was an expert at social engineering as a kid, as a 16-year-old, and... You know, and it's kind of comical that the guy, you know, is in marketing. You know, I was going to say, where else would he go, right? <laughs> yeah, you, you really should look at it. I don't know if he has a Facebook account, but you really should. That would be really funny. And I'm sure when he sees your books and all the things that he's done, he probably says, wow, you know, I should get in touch with him, too. Just kind of funny how those uh, past people in our lives come and you see them in such different ways. So, right. And when I was in high school, I actually was told by another student, you know, that I would enjoy taking computer class. And at the time, I had absolutely no interest. It just didn't seem interesting to me. And I decided, uh, hey, I'll give it a shot. So I was introduced to the computer instructor, a fellow named Mr. Chris. And he told me I didn't have the prerequisites to get into class because I didn't have calculus and uh, some other prereqs that were necessary. And you had to be a senior as well. And then my friend, who was there at the time, said, hey, show Mr. Crisp all the tricks you can do with the telephone. <laughs> and, I, and I showed him all, like, I could access these, like, computer systems and control them through the touchtone pad, and I can, like, do all these crazy things with the phone. And then what he did is he waived the prerequisites and allowed me into class, and he's probably still regretting that decision today. <laughs> So funny. So how did it turn into, like, really hacking, like hacking into computers? What happened then? Well, at the time, you know, you know, as, a, you know, as I was growing up uh, and I became more involved in phone freaking and computer hacking, well, then I was into hacking the phone system. And, um, uh, and eventually I became interested in becoming, uh, in, in hacking systems Purely for the entertainment, it was more of like climbing Mount Everest. It was the challenge, the seduction of adventure, but most importantly, it was the pursuit of knowledge because I wanted to learn everything about the phone company. I wanted to learn everything about computer technology. And 
uh, and it's kind of started in high school. Um, the I was with the Los Angeles Unified School District, and at the time, the the school computer did not have cool computer games. All the computer games were actually at USC that were fun to play. And back in the in this day, we had an Olivetti uh, terminal. It's a teletype terminal with an acoustic coupler modem. You know, so we're going back into the late 70s. So you would, you would simply dial the phone, the modem number, and you put the, the phone cradle into this acoustic coupler modem, and that's how you'd connect to the computer. So in the classroom, we had a phone, but it was restricted. So I couldn't get it, you know, you couldn't dial 9 to get an outside line, mm. but I could call the operator. So this is where my, was my first social engineering, is I'd call the operator, I'd pretend to be the, the, instruct, the computer science teacher, Mr. Christ, I'd say, yes, uh, I need you to please connect me to this phone number. It was the dial-up modem to USC, and then my friends and I would, you know, play computer games because they had a, a great computer gaming library at the time. And eventually the teacher figured it out because they were, you know, these weren't display monitors. They were teletype terminals. He would come in the, you know, in the lab and, you know, look through the paper and see, hey, we're dialing up to USC. So then a few days later... He, as class is starting, he says, oh, I want to announce to the class I found the one device that's going to stop Kevin from, you know, <laughs> call, dialing up USC and playing computer games all day. <laughs> and what it was is he purchased a phone lock, and he placed it in the number one position of the rotary dial because back in this day it wasn't even touchdown. Right. And, and then I said, hey, Mr. Chris, do you want to see a cool trick? And then what I did, I asked him for a phone number uh, of the main, the main number of the school, and he gave it to me, and then with the switch hook, I was able to pulse out. In other words, you know, if, it, if the first number was a three, I'd hit a three. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd hit the switch hook three times, you know, in quick succession, and I would be able to dial the phone number by simply tapping the switch hook. So this guy was clearly embarrassed, oh. and ended up ripping the phone out of the wall actually and throwing it across the room because I, you know, I kind of one upped him, and he didn't appreciate it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> So, That's crazy stuff. I mean, and actually... It was just you were a prankster. I, how I, how yeah. I started with hacking is I was encouraged to do it in school. I mean, I started hacking before it was against the law, and, um, and where my teachers and family actually encouraged me. In fact, one of the first programming assignments I was given was to write a Fortran program to find the first 100 Fibonacci numbers. And instead, I wrote a program to steal my fellow students' passwords. It was what I called a login simulator. And because I was working so intently on this program, I didn't have time to do the assignment. So at the end of the day, I told the instructor, I wasn't able to do this uh, Fibonacci assignment, but look at my cool password stealer. And he looked at the program. The teacher was impressed, and he actually gave me an A. (laughs) And that was the ethics taught back in my day is I got an A. I got a lot of praise in the classroom as being the whiz kid. Today... If you were going to do the same thing, you'd probably get arrested. Right. You were just being creative and a genius. (laughs) I don't know if you'd call it a genius. I was just, I I just used to think of clever things to do, and it was, and it was just fun as a kid. Right. And let's kind of explain what you mean by, by, I mean, you gave a couple examples of social engineering when you call up and you pretend to be someone else, but let's give like a real example because I think a lot of people nowadays, get sucked into this social engineering. You know, I know you've done a lot of programs for companies on how not to get sucked in. 
So let's talk about that a little bit because I want my audience to know what it is and how to avoid being caught. Well, most of it nowadays is happening via email. You heard of uh, the recent computer attacks on Google and RSA security sure. uh, in the news recently, haven't you? Yes. Okay, that was done through a technique called spear phishing. So what the attacker does is they find somebody, an employee, in the company that will likely have access to the information that they are seeking. Uh, when I'm doing security assessments, because I, uh, today I'll use LinkedIn and I'll look for network engineers or, or system administrators or network administrators, because those people are most likely to have uh, ex- you know, additional or administrative access rights on the network. So then what you'll do is you'll use social networks, you'll do other types of information reconnaissance to try to learn, well, who do they normally communicate with via email? What customers? What suppliers? What partners? And the object, the the attacker, or the social engineer in this case, wants to be able to send a file to the victim, but wants to, to have trust and credibility because of the source. So let's say uh, the the victim uh, deals with uh, Cisco, right? The attacker could simply register a domain called ciscosupport.com if it doesn't exist, and or come up something creative with a with a domain name. Let's call it even cisco-support.com. Right. So it and looks then what real. they could do mm-hmm. is booby trap a PDF file, which is usually trusted. And they'll booby-trap the file where it contains code or computer instructions that exploits a security vulnerability in Adobe Acrobat. Mm. So now when the victim gets an email from CiscoSupport.com uh, saying, you know, you know, please look at this email. It's a, you know, it's a new support ticket that we've opened on your behalf or some, something that looks reasonable and will encourage the person or influence them to open it. They open up the PDF file. They have no idea. You know, it might, be, it might just be a blank page. But what's happened is now the attacker has gained full control of that person's desktop uh, because they were running a vulnerable version of Adobe, Adobe Acrobat. So that is a primary example. Like on the phone, social engineering, I mean, just recently uh, I received a phone call from my financial institution, and it's kind of interesting. My, so my bank calls me. And they go, hi, may I speak to Mr. Mitnick, please? And I go, yes, speaking. And they go, hi, Mr. Mitnick, we're with, you know, such and such financial uh, institution, and uh, we have some, uh, we want to talk about your account. I go, yeah, no problem. How can I help you? They go, before we can help you, you know, we need to verify your identity. Can you please give us your password? (laughs) Oh, goodness. Right. And I I swear to God, this happens, like, in the last year three to four times. And then I would, of course, obviously not give out my password, but I think 90% of the people would. Yes. And what I usually do is I'll ask, and then I'll say, well, well you, give, you, know, you called me, so I'm not going to give you my password. Right, right. What ends up happening is I call the financial institution on a number that I know belongs to the financial institution, and then I try to reach the person. And in a couple of cases, it was not the financial institution, and one of them it was. Wow. So, Somebody I mean, was this, trying to get Kevin Mitnick. <laughs> exactly, because... You know, I'm the guy that if they could social engineer, you know, it would be all over the Internet. It would go viral because of my background. Right. They'd they'd get the blue ribbon. (laughs) The king of the hill. That's right. That's right. No, I, I you know, and I learned so much from you. I got a call from the IRS last year 
or they said they were the IRS, and they said uh, that there was a problem with my tax return. And they said, um, you know, they wanted to have some information. And I said, wait a minute. I said, I don't really trust you. You know, I don't know who you are. Give me your name. Give me your number. I'm going to call the number that I know. I'm going to look it up on the on the internet. And I called, and it really was true. You know, and I said, I apologize because I was so angry thinking that someone was going to try and rook me. But it really was true. But, but it, you know, then she laughed and she says, I don't blame you. You know, there's a lot of fraud out there. And I got a nice conversation with her. But yeah, always, 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 even if it's the police calling you, somebody says that they're from the police department and they want to know your information. They found something of yours. Do the same thing that Kevin says, right, Kevin? Yeah, I mean, um, it, it can't Usually trust anybody. I, I don't see the, the, the social engineering, you know, I don't know how many people would be, believe it, you know, would be the police, but there's one trick that social engineers could do to really make the victim believe it's the police. And you know what that is. It's called caller ID spoofing. Yes. So yes. I can call you and make it appear on your cell phone or your home phone if you have caller ID 911. Yes. Right? So if you see somebody calling from 911, what are the chances that you will cooperate pretty high. Yes, yeah. Right? And so that's a technique that attackers use to build trust and confidence when doing social engineering is they'll actually use caller ID spoofing uh, and there's services such as SpoofCard, S-P-O-O-F-C-A-R-D.com, that allow anyone to do this. And what they'll do is they'll spoof your financial institution, your credit card company, your bank, your, your, your company if you have a large company, and they'll use that to build credibility and trust when trying to either get you to reveal information or getting you to perform an action item. Because in social engineering, it's when a, a, a hacker uses manipulation, deception, or influence tactics to get a target to comply with the request. And that request is either to reveal information or do, to do some action item. So I think we gave two examples of that, you yes. know, just a moment ago. So, Kevin, I know you do a lot of training for companies and training. You, you do things on TV. Why don't you give us some tips for the companies that are driving by or listening in? What are some things that they absolutely must have, like the, maybe the three top things that you should never do to protect yourself from social engineering? Well, with social engineering, um, what companies need to do is really limit what types of files could come into the organization. I mean, to do business these days, you usually have to allow PDF files. But one thing a company could do is purchase a product that actually examines the software on employee desktops to make sure it's at the latest re release or the latest version. Because a lot of these exploitation tactics work because people are running outdated versions of software. Like Adobe Acrobat, Adobe Flash, or even an older, I mean, Google was, uh, the people that were victimized at Google were using Internet Explorer 6 when 8 was already out. Right. So right. There's, a, there's also a tool for consumers to do the same thing that's free of charge uh, from, I think, Secuna, S-E-C-U-N-I-A.com, and that's called Personal Software Inspector. I think anybody could just put that into Google, Personal Software Inspector, and what that tool, again, does is it helps you keep your desktop software up to date because that's where the attackers are, are, are targeting these days is the software in your desktop that's vulnerable. 
and they're also targeting your mobile devices. Mm, um, that's even scarier. Your Android, right. uh, especially, and it's usually through trying to infect your your Android with malware. Mm. Uh, just recently, last week, I was in New York on a book tour, and I went to a magic show, and yeah, because I'm still interested. In <laughs> I was going to say you're still interested in magic. <laughs> Love magic, and uh, one of the magicians was showing me this cool new Android sharing uh, tool that allows people to share Android applications so you could essentially get applications for free because you know how people tend to like getting things for free rather than paying for it, you know. Right, right. And, uh, and I looked at it and I go, well, you might like the free applications, but you're really putting yourself at an extreme risk of getting infected with a malicious code because a hacker could find a, a very popular application could put in uh, computer instructions that do nasty things, package it up, you download it, thinking it's the, you know, the coolest app in the world, and you've just compromised your own phone. Oh, goodness. <laughs> right? So Yeah. What yeah, did so, he say? Oh, he probably just died right there. <laughs> oh, he, he, I, I think he was, I, I wasn't sure. He said, oh, I would never use it. But <laughs> I think he said that after I brought that to his attention. Yeah, right. Right. He's probably already used it. He's probably going ahead and reinstalling uh, <laughs> uh, the Android operating system back on his phone to clear out any potential things that he's installed. Right. And how about for, you know, about the phone dishing, shall we call it, that that um, when people call you at work or keep people call you at home, what are some things that we talked a little bit about it, but, you know, how do you keep this at a conscious level? How, how do you do that? Do you just be constantly paranoid or... What do you do? Because I know you're... Well, I think it goes to the sensitivity of the information. So if somebody is calling you on the telephone, no matter who they claim to be, unless you personally recognize their voice, and they're asking you for sensitive information, you know, passwords, bank account numbers, social security numbers, mother's maiden name, anything that would, you know, rise to the level of sensitivity, then you have to think, well, who initiated this phone call? And if it was somebody else, then that should raise a yellow flag, or even in some cases a red flag, that you need to be uh, cautious. Um, and, uh, unfortunate, and unfortunately, these scams are continuing today, and that's because people are falling for them. I mean, I, I'm a user of Skype, yes. and mm-hmm. I constantly get pop-ups because I allow anyone to call me on Skype yes. or to send me a message, uh-huh. and I'll get a pop-up from Skype that says, We've just detected your computer has been infected with uh, with a with um, a dangerous worm or virus, and uh, if you download this tool, it will eradicate the threat. Right, I've gotten course, emails like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And of course, as soon as you download the tool to remove the the malware, that's actually the malware itself installing on your machine, and you have to think about it. Well. Why am I still getting these messages? Because it's still working with some people on the internet. Right. Is, you know, maybe my grandmother or maybe somebody that's not really into computers but uses it just for work-related purposes uh, falls for these things. And their machine's infected, and now the attacker could steal everything, their bank account numbers, their passwords, their tax returns that they might have on their computer that contain their Social Security number. And it's basically... Now the hacker is in the position to steal that person's identity. 
Yeah, you know, I, I want people to know that when you were hacking and when you were a fugitive, I mean, basically, you weren't doing it to destroy anything or hurt anybody. You you were doing it for the fun. And um, why don't we talk a little bit about that, what you went through being a fugitive? Well, uh, I was evading the government at the time. Um, I, I, I became a fugitive from the government, and uh, it became, you know, this is what Ghost in the Wires really covers is this... Uh, decades-long cat-and-mouse game with the FBI. And one of the methods I used to, uh, to you know, I, is I used to uh, create new identities because I was trying to evade the government. I certainly wasn't going to work or live under the name of Kevin Mitnick. So the name I chose in the beginning was Eric Weiss. And that relates back to uh, my idol at the time, who was Harry Houdini, because Harry Houdini's real name was Eric Weiss. <laughs> So, so you got by through the equation again. You know, yes. I, I thought I had a sense of humor, but you know, later on I found out the FBI did not. But how this <laughs> became a cat and mouse game is when I uh, what happened is I was on probation and the FBI had sent this informant to in uh, to get me back in kind of into the hacking game. And then when I started investigating the, uh, the informant, I had to use hacking techniques to learn what was going on, and. And at the time, uh, I made a stupid and regrettable decision, is I hacked into the cell, of, uh, the cell phone uh, operator at the time in Los Angeles called Pactel Cellular. At the time, there was only two. There was Pactel Cellular and L.A. Cellular in Los Angeles. And what I did is since I had the informant's voicemail and pager number, I was able to search the call detail records, meaning I could search uh, for anyone that's called the informant and if anyone with a Pactel cellular phone called this guy, I would be able to find out who it was. So at the end of the day, I was able to work out the cell phone numbers of the FBI agents that were tasked with capturing me. So at the time, I wasn't a fugitive. I was working as a private investigator in Calabasas, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. And I had this device where I was able to program in all the FBI phone numbers that I uncovered. And it was a scanner that monitored the frequency of the cell site that was plugged into a special box that was plugged into a computer. So anytime an FBI cell phone would end up in my, uh, in my area, anytime one of their phones would register in the cell site, which they would if they actually were physically in the area and had their phone turned on, it would give me an alarm. So one morning I walked into the office and I heard this beeping I walked down the hallway, was coming from my office. I couldn't figure out what was going on. I walked up to the computer, and lo and behold, my FBI early warning detection system was triggered. And it was interesting because two hours earlier, uh, one of the FBI agents was actually calling a payphone that was across the street from my apartment. And at the time, I was sleeping. So I figured out, well, I wasn't, they didn't come there to arrest me. Now, maybe they're following me, but why would they be following me at 6 in the morning? That didn't make sense. So then I quickly figured out that they were likely there to get a description of my apartment to conduct a search. Wow. So, Ke of Kevin, course, Kevin. I immediately go home. I clean out everything in my apartment that the FBI would be interested in, anything computer-related. And the very next day, I stopped at, you know, because, you know, I had this prankster type of you know, mentality. mentality. Yeah, yeah. I stopped at a Winchell's Donuts. I picked up an assorted dozen. I took a big uh, marker, like a Sharpie, and I wrote FBI Donuts on it. 
and I stuck it in the refrigerator. And the very next day, <laughs> they showed up at 6 in the morning, and they didn't arrest me. They searched my apartment, and I just left as they were doing the search. When I came back, the donuts were untouched. Oh, my goodness. Or something. But that was the type of sense of humor I had, you know, in playing this cat-and-mouse game, which, again, was crazy and insane and occurred many, many years ago. But this is the type of stuff I did uh, as a kid to have fun. We are out of time, but I just want to mention your book again because it has all this good stuff that you're talking about now and lots more. So Ghost in the Wires, My Adventure as the World's Most Wanted Hacker. Kevin, you are wonderful. We'll have you back again. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.